Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And we are currently covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And right now we are on the Sira, chapter number 33. And Sira, of course, is the history of the life of Prophet Muhammad. So before we get started, I just wanted to go back a few steps, a few chapters. Not too long ago, we discussed the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and I mentioned some of the benefits of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. However, one of the listeners to this podcast, Islamic History Exclusive, pointed out another benefit of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah that I missed out on, and I think the brother for pointing this out, because this sort of thing helps to improve uh, the knowledge of all of us, helps all of us increase our understanding of this time period, and also helps us to understand the history of Prophet Muhammad. And I don't have all the answers. I don't know every single detail of the Prophet's life. So I encourage you, if you know of anything, if you can add some some depth to the story, you can add some different tangents that I may not be aware of, I truly encourage you to explain that. And the brother, he mentioned this on the in the comments episode for the Treaty of Hudaybiyah on our Patreon uh, site. And so if you want to go and see that, you can. But I'll just go ahead and summarize what he was saying, something that I missed, actually, when I first told the story. And I, I can't say I, I missed it, I just didn't know about it. Or if I didn't know about it, I didn't really think about it. But basically, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, when the Prophet and the Quraysh came to this treaty, this, in a way, elevated the Prophet's status with the Quraysh. It basically made it the Quraysh recognized Medina and the Muslim state as an independent state. They had to recognize the Prophet's authority over Medina and had to recognize Medina itself as an independent state away from Mecca and one that was actually on the same level as Mecca at the very least. And to put it in perspective, you hear a common saying from many politicians in many different nations that they don't negotiate with terrorists. And the reason is because they don't accept the terrorist as one of the reasons. They don't accept the terrorist as a state or a body worth negotiating with. Well, in this case, the Quraysh had to recognize that Medina and the authority that the Prophet ﷺ established in Medina was an independent state and that they had to recognize it. And so that is one of the other benefits of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And so with that, we'll now give a quick recap of the last episode. In the last episode, we finished off the seventh year of the Hijrah. And we mentioned how Hajjaj ibn Alat, he misled the Quraysh into thinking that the Muslims had lost at Khaybar. We also mentioned the Prophet's daughter Zainab was reunited with her husband in Medina when he converted to Islam. We also discuss Umratul Qadr, the Umrah or the minor pilgrimage of, of fulfillment. And then we also discuss the Prophet's marriage to Maimuna bint al Hadith. And so now we are going to begin the eighth year of the Hijrah. And there are several major events in this year. Uh, the three most important ones, however, are. And the first one is two different events that kind of combine into one. These are the conversions of Amr ibn al-As and Khalid ibn Walid. These two turned out to be two very important Muslims as far as expanding the caliphate and the Muslim empire after the Prophet's death. 
Khalid ibn Walid especially was pivotal in that role. The second major event was the Battle of Mu'tah, and the third major event was the conquest of Mecca. There was another major event which included the Battle of Hunayn, which was also very important, but we'll get to that in a future episode. For this episode, we'll cover the first two items we mentioned, the conversions of Amr ibn As and Khalid ibn Walid, and then the Battle of Mu'tah. And so beginning with Amr ibn al-As, he had already secretly converted two years earlier. He uh, did officially convert or move to Medina, I should say, in the year 8 AH, but he had already secretly converted earlier than that. This happened after the Battle of the Trench, Ghazwat al-Khandaq. He began to have doubts about the Quraysh, and he was not sure if the Quraysh really could beat the Muslims because... The Battle of Khandaq has just happened, and despite all of the forces and resources the Quraysh had assembled, they still had not managed to really harm the Muslims at all. And so after the conclusion of that battle, Amr ibn As decided to move to Abyssinia, and his thinking was that if the Muslims conquered Mecca, then he'd be safe. And if the Muslims were defeated, he could always return to the Quraysh and they would accept him with open arms. So he did just that. He arrived in Abyssinia roughly around the same time that the Prophet's emissary, Amr ibn Umayyah, was there as well. And we discussed Amr ibn Umayyah's trip in Sirah episode number 30. Amr ibn Umayyah, he was sent by the Prophet wasallam to An-Najashi, or the Nagus, as the title is in English. He, An-Najashi, was the king or emperor of Abyssinia, and the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, had sent Amr ibn Umayyah to Abyssinia to request the return of his companions, including the Prophet's cousin, Ja'far ibn Abi Talib. So, Amr ibn Umayyah, he by the way, he had also, we mentioned this earlier, that Ahmad ibn Umayyah had once also been sent by the Prophet to assassinate Abu Sufyan. We spoke about that several episodes ago. In any case, Ahmad ibn Az, to Amr's here, Ahmad ibn Az, he recognized Ahmad ibn Umayyah. So Ahmad ibn Az, he got the idea that perhaps he could approach An-Najashi and ask for permission to kill Ahmad ibn Umayyah. Amr ibn As had a good relationship with An-Najashi, the emperor of Abyssinia, and he was hoping that maybe he could convince him to kill, to allow him to kill Amr ibn Umayyah and therefore raise his status with the Quraysh back home. And so Amr ibn As, he did just that. He approached the emperor An-Najashi. He presented some gifts to him and asked him for permission to kill Amr ibn Umayyah, or actually more specifically, he requested that An-Najashi turn Amr ibn Umayyah over to him so he could execute him. And An-Najashi, of course, refused to hand Amr ibn Umayyah over. As we already know, but perhaps Amr ibn As did not know, An-Najashi had already accepted Islam. And so when Amr ibn As requested this, An-Najashi, in his anger and frustration, began to hit himself in the nose really hard. And he kept striking it over and over and over again because he was so insulted by Ahmad ibn As's request. And he said, "How how could he turn over the messenger of the man who spoke with angel Jibril? 
So this is Andajashi that is speaking to Ahmed ibn As. And then he turned to Ahmed ibn As and warned him that the Prophet would ultimately defeat all of those who defeated him. I'm sorry, he would ultimately defeat all of those who opposed him. Now, Ahmed ibn As was scared when he saw An-Najashi striking himself in the face. He thought it wouldn't be too long before An-Najashi would order his own execution and Ahmed ibn As would be a goner. But he uh, held his composure a little bit and apologized for insulting An-Najashi. And then An-Najashi encouraged him to accept Islam. And at that moment, Ahmed ibn As, he accepted Islam. And it is said that he took the Shahada, or at least, I don't know if he took the actual words of Shahada as we know it now, but he accepted Muhammad وسلم, as a prophet of Allah, and An-Najashi was his witness. And Amr then returned to Mecca, but he kept his conversion secret. And so when he returned to Mecca, he stayed there for a little while, but eventually he migrated to Medina with two other men, those being those being Khalid ibn Walid and Uthman ibn Talha. And so that brings us to the conversion of Khalid ibn Walid. Now ever since the Battle of the Trench, just like Amr ibn As, Khalid ibn Walid was thinking about the Muslims. He thought how every time he faced the Muslims, the, they seemed to come out ahead, even though the Quraysh had better numbers and better weapons and all. The Quraysh... Even the one victory that Quraysh had, the victory at uh, Mount Uhud, the Battle of Uhud, that was a limited victory. And the Quraysh really, they didn't invade Medina. They did kill a few Muslims. They came out ahead. But it wasn't a, a rout or anything like that. And it certainly didn't stop the growth and spread of Islam. And then the next battle, which was at the... Um, the trench, the Battle of Khandak, the Quraysh once again got nothing out of that. And then the final confrontation between Khalid ibn Walid and the Muslims was at the Battle of Hudaybiyah. Khalid ibn Walid had led a cavalry to try to intercept the Muslims. He was hoping to get a fight out of it, but the Prophet managed to outmaneuver him and avoided meeting Khalid ibn Walid head on. And then he was able to enter negotiations with the Quraysh. And so Khalid ibn Walid was now coming to the conclusion that Islam had to be the truth. Now, there are some other ideas about why Khalid ibn Walid accepted Islam. One historian named Al-Waqidi, who is a very prominent Muslim historian, he seems to suggest that Khalid ibn Walid converted mostly for the chance at battle, but Waqidi isn't, al Waqidi isn't always reliable. What Al-Waqidi was suggesting was that Khalid ibn Walid he knew he the, his chances at battle or fighting were very limited with the Quraysh because the Quraysh really, until the Muslims came along, the Quraysh didn't really go to battle. Whereas his chances at fighting with the Muslims was very high because the Muslims were an upstart. They're trying to expand their territory. And so there's go, there was, they were always going to have conflict with some of their, their neighbors. But once again, Al-Waqidi is now one of the most reliable people in the world. And so that analysis of his is kind of questionable. But what we do know is that Khalid ibn Walid at some point in time decided to accept Islam and that when he was on his way into uh, to Medina, he ran into Amr ibn As. 
as we just mentioned, Ahmad Ibn Aas had already converted. He was on his way to migration, uh, to make the migration as well. And then they were joined by one other man, another Quraysh name, Uthman ibn Abi Talha. And we'll discuss Uthman ibn Abi Talha perhaps in the next episode. Um, this is once again not the future caliph, Uthman ibn Affan, two totally different people. And so the three men, they joined the Prophet in Medina in Safar 8AH, that is the um, second year of the eighth the second month of the eighth year of the Hijrah. And uh, Ahmad ibn As, after he, before he took his Shahada actually, he wanted confirmation that his, that his previous sins would be forgiven. He was basically sitting before the Prophet at the Prophet's Masjid in Medina. He wanted to make sure that his sins would be forgiven. And the Prophet wasallam confirmed that Ahmad ibn As's conversion, as well as his migration, both of those would wipe out his past sins. There's no uh, discussion about whether Khalid ibn Walid or the other one, Uthman ibn Abi Talha, had any conditions or anything for accepting Islam. Seems like they just took it immediately. And so, Ahmad ibn As, Khalid ibn Walid, and Uthman ibn Abi Talha, they all accepted Islam. And a few weeks later, the Prophet sent Amr to the Qudai tribe. Amr's grandmother was from this tribe, and so he had some connections with them. And the Prophet sent Amr ibn As to this tribe to request their help for the Battle of Mu'tah. And that brings us to the Battle of Mu'tah. This battle took place in Jamar al-Ula, the uh, fifth month of the year, still in the eighth year of the Hijrah. In this year, well, let's discuss the background to this battle before we get into it. One of the Prophet's companions, Hadith ibn Umair, was killed by the Ghassanids of Syria. Now, we had already discussed the Ghassanids and the Prophet's emissary to them in episode 30, when the Prophet began sending out emissaries. In that episode, we mentioned how the Prophet sent a companion named Shuja ibn Waham to King Hashim, the king of the Ghassanids. And the Ghassanids, once again, were Christian Arabs, and they were loyal or a vassal of the Roman Empire, Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire, which we now call the Byzantine Empire. So this emissary that was killed, Hadith ibn Umair, must have been a second emissary. The first one, Shuja ibn Waham, King Hashim, he scoffed at him, but he did not harm him. There's no indication. In fact, Shuja ibn Waham died many years later. He did not die in that on that trip to Syria. It's really more or less Jordan rather than Syria, but that's neither here nor there. In any case, it's not clear when or why the Prophet sent the second emissary to the Hosanids. So a Ghassanid officer named Shurahbil intercepted Hadith ibn Umair, the Prophet's emissary. And then after reading the Prophet's letter, Shurahbil, the Ghassanid military commander, had Hadith killed. And it's not really clear why he did that, whether he did it out of anger or whatever reason. In any case, killing envoys and diplomats and emissaries, all of that was against all civilized rules at the time. And we these things carry on even to today. And uh, today we call it diplomatic immunity, but essentially diplomats and emissaries and messengers, they were supposed to be above death and above, and above punishment. 
after all, if you cannot communicate with your enemies, you know, society kind of breaks down, a civilization breaks down. And so these guys were usually protected. So with the prophets, when the prophet found out that his emissary had been killed, he had to respond because this was a serious, serious affront. And so the prophet organized um, a force of Muslims to go out there and punish the Hosanids for killing his emissary. So the Muslim force that left from Medina numbered about 3,000. The prophet did not take part in this battle. Instead, the leader of the battle was the prophet's former former son, or adopted son, I should say, Zayd ibn Haditha. He was the leader. And the prophet set down a chain of command that is Zayd ibn Haditha was killed. Then Ja'far ibn Abi Talib would take his place. And then if Ja'far was killed, then Abdullah ibn Rawaha would take his place. Khalid ibn Walid was part of this force as well, but he did not have any command. He was just one among many other soldiers. So this battle didn't turn out too well for the Muslims. They had seriously underestimated the strength of the Ghassanids. The Ghassanids basically ruled the region that we now call Jordan, the nation of Jordan. And they, as we mentioned, were clients or vassals of the Byzantine Empire. And at that point in time, the Byzantines were perhaps the strongest army in the world. And so when the Muslims arrived, as they were heading towards their way, of course, the Hosannas knew about it. And the Hosannas began preparing for the confrontation. And they augmented their forces with other Bedouins or tribes that were nearby that were also allied to them. And there were also several Roman soldiers who had who were still in the area after the long war against Persia, which we spoke about a couple of episodes ago. They were still in the area and they were very experienced, experienced soldiers. And so they joined the Osanid force. And the Romans, in addition to being very experienced, they were also rather professional. The Romans had been waging war for over a thousand years by that time. So they knew what they were doing. And so the Muslims were about to come into a very strong force, something that they had never really encountered before. Now in Tariq Khattabari, he says that there are 100,000 Roman soldiers or Roman and Hosanid soldiers. That's definitely not true. Uh, there are There are modern... Um, scholars or academics who estimate that the entire Roman military at the time was only about 200,000. And so it is very unlikely that half the Roman force was sitting there in Jordan when they had this huge empire that covers so much of Middle East and Europe and North Africa and all these things. It's unlikely that half of their force was there. So either this was an an exaggeration by whoever reported that story or Maybe somebody missed a zero or something like that or added one too many zeros. So it is more likely that the Rosanid force was closer to somewhere around 10,000 to at most 15,000 soldiers. Whatever number it was, the Muslims were badly outnumbered and they were also outmatched. They were outclassed. This is a different class of fighter than the Muslims had been used to. So far, the Muslims had only fought in small clashes, and their Arab opponents, they were nowhere near as skilled as the Romans. The Romans had, once again, as we mentioned, they had a history of warfare. They were professionals at this. 
And so the Muslims were really punching out of their weight class in this one. And so the Muslim army is going along, going towards the Ghassanid region in Jordan. And they stopped at a, a region called Ma'an, which is in southern Jordan, to discuss their options. And so by now they knew that the odds were against them. Their enemy, the Arabs and, and the Roman forces that they were about to fight, they were at a region called Karak, about 60 miles north of them. And by this time, the Muslims knew that they were outnumbered. And so they sat around to discuss what they were going to do. Some wanted to send word back to the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, to get his advice. And their thinking was that either the Prophet would reinforce them, send some more soldiers to bolster their numbers, or he would order them to return home. Abdullah ibn Rawaha, however, he said that that's not what they came for. He said that this is what they came for. In other words, dying in battle because it was almost certain that they would be killed in this and they would lose and be killed in this battle. He said this is what they came out here for and that there were are two options basically, that they'd either win and be victorious or they would be martyred in battle and then of course go to heaven. And with that, that convinced the other soldiers to stay and to carry on and to go ahead and meet the Ghassanids head on. And so they stayed at Ma'an in southern Jordan for another two days before continuing the march towards the Ghassanids. And finally, they came into contact with the Ghassanids at a village called Balqa, which is near the Dead Sea in modern-day Jordan, I believe. Yes, still modern-day Jordan. So... Zayd ibn Haritha, he was the overall commander as the two forces were, were lining up, getting ready to fight. Zayd ibn Haritha, he didn't really like the terrain of the area. He wanted something with a little, a little better footing. And so he had his forces withdraw to a nearby village called Mu'ta, about five miles south. And that's how come it's called the Battle of Mu'ta, because this is pretty much where the battle took place. And so Zayd ibn Haditha, he uh, prepared his forces for battle. He joined them, he um, formed them up into the basic military formation of the time, which was three flanks, a left wing, a right wing, and a center wing. And Khalid ibn Walid, he was in the center wing or the center flank. He was just a common soldier once again. Zayd ibn Haditha, he appointed commanders for the left and right wing and took command of the center himself. And then the Ghassanids, they marched on and the battle began. The Muslim losses, however, were very heavy during this battle. The Muslims, once again, were fighting soldiers who had more experience, better weapons, many more numbers, knowledge of the terrain. They had every advantage over the Muslims. And in this case, the Muslims were badly outnumbered. In any case, Zayd ibn Haditha, he led the charge, and he uh, led the charge into the fray, and he was one of the first to be killed. Um, he was carrying the Prophet's banner, and he was quickly cut down by spears. And we'll discuss some of the way that the Muslims are fighting in this battle. We'll discuss that in a, in a few moments. Um, so anyway, so Zayd was killed, and as we mentioned, the Prophet had commanded that if Zayd was killed, then Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, the Prophet's cousin, would take command. So Ja'far, he picked up the banner and took over command, and he continued to fight, but he fought from his horse. He was holding the banner. The banner is still fighting from his horse, but eventually the battle got too, too uh, heated. It got uh, The fighting around him got too much, and so he was uh, basically 
not very maneuverable. He wasn't able to move around the way he'd like to, being on the horse and surrounded by all these men. And so he jumped down from his horse, hamstrung it, and charged into battle. And as the story goes, first his right arm was cut off, and so he switched the banner and carried it with his left arm. And then his left arm was cut off. They tried to hold it between his knees. Then finally they just hit him in the chest and just killed him completely, and that was it. And so Abdullah ibn Rawaha, once again, following the Prophet's commandments, he picked up the banner. Now Abdullah ibn Rawaha, he took charge. And he was riding the horse while holding the banner, trying to encourage the men. And at first, he was a little overwhelmed by the intensity of the battle and seemed like he hesitated for just a brief moment. But then he gathered himself and he made himself and his horse press on. But eventually, once again, just like Jafar ibn Abi Talib, the fighting got too hot. It was too difficult. And so he dismounted in order to fight on foot and have a little bit more maneuverability. But of course, going on, on foot made him more vulnerable. While he was fighting, one of his cousins who was in the Muslim, Muslim military ran over and gave him piece, a piece of meat, something to eat, I guess, to strengthen him. So Jafar, I'm sorry, not Jafar, Abdullah ibn Rawaha, he took a few bites of the meat and then he heard the sounds of the battle intensifying around him and he looked at the meat and was like, why am I still in this world living? Basically, he was ready to die for the cause. And so he threw down the meat and then jumped into the battle on foot and he fought until he was also killed. And so, and so now the Muslims were leaderless and they weren't really sure what to do. All the leaders who the Prophet had, had appointed, they had all been killed. And so the remaining Muslim forces, there were still quite a few of them left, but now confusion was beginning to set in and anxiety and fear and chaos because the Muslims were about to be surrounded and crushed if they had nobody to, nobody to take command. And so when there was a brief pause in the battle, one of the companions named Thabit ibn Arqam, he picked up the banner and he shouted for one of the Muslims to take command. And some of the Muslims shouted back at him, you take command. Thabit said, no, he, I'm not the one for that. He just wouldn't do it. And so he saw Khalid ibn Walid, and he handed the banner to Khalid ibn Walid. Now Khalid was fairly new to Islam. Remember, he had just taken Shahada at the Prophet's hand a few months before this. Nonetheless, and so he was hesitant to take charge, but eventually the other Muslims supported him and voiced his support. And so nonetheless, at some point, he went ahead and agreed and he took charge. And so the first thing Khalid ibn Walid wanted to do, and I don't have to say this, but maybe I do, Khalid ibn Walid is widely regarded by both Muslim and non-Muslim scholars as one of history's greatest military commanders. So we're about to see this man put his, put his uh, genius into action. The first thing Khalid realized he had to do, he had to make some more room for the Muslims because they were being, they were about to be flanked and encircled by the Romans and crushed. And he needed a way to break out and make some room for the Muslims. And he, if he could get some room, then they could think and perhaps maybe make a retreat. I don't think even at this time Khalid ibn Walid really intended to try to fight to the death. He intended to make a retreat. And so he motivated the exhausted Muslims to prepare for one more strong charge. And he got them together and the Muslims attacked and hit the Hosanas with everything they had one hard time. And the, the strength of the attack was so intense and so strong that the, it, it shocked and confused the Hosanas who 
basically were pushed back and and scattered for for a short while. And so now Khalid had the Muslims organized. He got himself some breathing room with his with his hard hit against against the Ghassanids. But he knew that the Ghassanids would eventually recover and eventually overwhelm them. He couldn't really uh, risk another strike because usually these things don't work more than one time. So he had hit the Ghassanids with one surprise hard hit that they weren't really expecting, one massive charge. But he knew that doing it again would probably be a bad idea. So now that he has some breathing room, he decided it was best to retreat. And so he steadily led the Muslims back into a steady retreat, organized retreat, and they waited until nightfall. Uh, once back then, even now really, once night comes, it's kind of hard to make a, a good fight of it. And so once nighttime came, the Muslims turned and headed back to Medina. Now, when the Muslim army returned to Medina, they returned to insults. Uh, the, the people of Medina, they were used to winning. They hadn't lost in a long time. And so when they saw the Muslim army returning defeated, and so many, they had lost some soldiers, not a whole lot. It was a complete wipeout, but they had, of course, lost a good number of soldiers. The people of Medina were thrown, some of them threw dust at them and called them cowards for fleeing the battle. Uh, they would have said, I guess many of them had the same idea, like Abdullah ibn Rawaha, it would be better to fight to the death and lose than to withdraw in the face of certain defeat and reorganize and come back and fight another day. In any case, the Prophet ﷺ defended them and told the, the other Muslims, the other people of Medina, not to insult them. And he promised that the Muslims would, would actually indeed return to fight another day. And when the Prophet heard the story of Khalid's uh, successful retreat, he gave him the nickname Saifullah, which means the sword of Allah. And that nickname stuck with Khalid ibn Walid throughout the rest of his life. And so that will conclude the Battle of Mu'ta, and will also include this episode of the Sira Podcast, chapter number 33. Inshallah, we will return with another episode, and next time we will discuss the conquest of Mecca. But until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.